Hey, before we get started, we just want to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Church Sound Made Simple. Mixing sound seems complicated, but it doesn't have to be. Cut the overwhelm by getting access to the stress-free, no-fluff training that will help you create great sound at church. Visit churchsoundmadesimple.com. Welcome to the Collaborate Worship Podcast, where we help you create great sound at church. I'm your host, Cade Young, and today I'm joined with the one and only James Wasson. Welcome back to the show, man. How are you doing? Howdy, Cade. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, uh, thanks for having me again. And yeah, doing doing well. It's uh, Things are looking up, looking bright and sunny around here, so the spirits are high, and it's great. Awesome. Well, for those of you who don't know James, he's the author of Great Church Sound, which is an incredible book. I have a copy of it, and to me, it's kind of like the manual that you've always wanted. Everything you need to know about church sound is in there, but unlike most manuals, you can actually understand it. (laughs) And I've known James for several years now. He's a wealth of knowledge. James is passionate about helping you create great church sound. So, James, i got to ask you, why do you get excited about all this sound stuff? Gosh, it's uh, there's so many elements to it. I mean, it's kind of like an onion. You peel back these layers, and and all of a sudden you find out more. Um, and it's it's actually you know I kind of got into it in some ways because of the technical side of it, but you very quickly learn that there's an artistic side of it. I think I've talked about that before, but uh, there's just so much depth to the field. Um, getting into live sound, getting into recorded sound, getting into all these different production elements. You could get into to uh, you know television and and movie production. You can get into radio. You can get into obviously church sound and and uh, concerts and anything. I mean, it it really runs the gamut. And now we're in live streaming, and we see how important sound is. Uh, for that function. And I know you've spent a lot of time decoding that and demystifying some of the live streaming stuff for for uh, related to sound. And I think that has a huge amount of value, but it's equal parts tech and art. And uh, that that's a lot of fun for me. Yeah, man, I agree. It is a lot of fun. And it just reminded me that I get emails all the time of people who are just getting started with church sound. And they're just like, I hope that I get there at some point. And I'm like, well, I hate to burst your bubble, but you really never get there. Like learning sound is a learning experience that never ends. But it's like the funnest journey that you could ever go on if you'll just embrace the fact that it's a journey and take it one step at a time. Yeah, yeah, you really do. And I think there's a lot of of people that get turned off because there's a lot of um, geeks out there that can sometimes make you feel like you're stupid if you don't know certain things. And we already, a lot of us have that natural disposition. Anyway, we're ashamed or embarrassed that we don't know something. And some of these experts, so to speak, uh, really sort of don't, don't do the industry any good when they turn off people because you just don't know what a fader is. I mean, I remember starting out and, and I had to install different sound system components and I had to ask somebody, what's an attenuator? Uh, apparently that wasn't in my high school vocabulary English class or whatever. And it explained to me it's a volume control. I'm like, oh, well, of course that makes sense. But there's all this jargon, right? And once you can get past some of that stuff and you don't feel so stupid asking these questions, everybody has to learn about this stuff. Uh, we're not just born with it. So yeah, you kind of got, you put your pride on the shelf a little bit, embrace the learning curve and and just go for it. Yeah, good stuff, man. Well, in every podcast interview, we always take a moment to bring a failure out into the open so we can laugh together, learn something along the way. Because the truth is, and this goes along the lines of what you were just saying, we all make mistakes. And they seem really heavy until you realize that even the pros are out there making mistakes. So James, fess up and tell us an embarrassing story. (laughs) Well, 
Yeah, you you mentioned the pros and and it's funny because once you get into this doing it professionally, everybody looks up to you as though you've got all the answers all the time and you do it perfect every time. And uh, we strive for that, uh, honestly, uh, but we rarely get there 100% of the time. Uh, So on a recent project, I was actually helping install a system at a church and uh, we were running running around trying to get everything finished and hooked up. And we went out to test the wireless microphone system. And we're running all around the church with the mics, trying to figure out, okay, where's the sweet spot? Where does this mic cut in and out? How, what's our range with it and everything? And we had these amazing antennas on the system. And we just weren't getting the mic to pick up any farther from maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 feet away from the equipment rack. And I'm just running around trying to figure this out. We went to the hardware store. We got new cable, repulled the antenna cable partway or, or put new connectors on it, tweaked plates and everything. Finally, we're running around all over the place and we're looking at the rack and we're turning equipment on and off and trying to figure this thing out. And all of a sudden we realize, oh, our antenna combiner is turned off. So basically we had like four wireless mics on the system. They all have to run through one other device that combines those signals and then goes to the antennas out in the church. And uh, we were running around. I mean, we we literally wasted about half a day chasing that problem around. And it was because I did not turn the power switch on on the back of this antenna combiner. It was, it was nuts. And, and I just felt like an idiot <laughs> afterwards. I'm just like, oh, and I've got all these people. We're getting ready for a training session. And, and it's like the pro is here doing his thing and totally screwed up. So it happens. <laughs> it does. It happens to all of us. And I'm glad it's not just me that forgets to turn something on once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. That power button or the mute button, the stupid switch, I call it, you know. <laughs> yep. No doubt. <laughs> All right, man. Let's talk EQ because this is probably the thing I get the most questions about and you probably do too. So let's dive in. Uh, first question for you is EQ really as complicated as it seems? Yeah. Well, um, it's actually, it seems complicated. I've, I've actually got charts and diagrams and it's got all these frequencies and, and things listed with like HZ after them and, you know, all this stuff. And then you, then you get into adjusting EQ and you've got decibels by boosting and cutting and all these different ranges. You've got terms like graphic EQ, parametric EQ, notch filters, whatever it is. Um, and it, those are all things we use to try to describe it, but it's really not as complicated as it looks on paper. Uh, basically, it's as easy as picturing a line from point A to B, and there's a bunch of little spots in between. And if you turn up or down one of those things, it's basically a volume control for individual frequencies that we can hear. And when you separate that spectrum into those frequencies, you can control those and turn those up and down. So if you think of EQ as a volume control, it starts to become a lot less complicated than it looks. Uh, and, And we'll probably spend some time talking about how you make some of those adjustments, but it's really not that complex. I used to think that you had to know every single frequency and what it was supposed to do on the console. And that was kind of the geek in me that was like, no, I got to know this stuff, like know it, know it. And you realize the pros don't even know half of what they're doing to get the sound they get. They just sort of tweak it until it sounds good. And that's that. 
you know, <laughs> and, and some of them do a better job of interpreting what they're hearing and describing. It's kind of like when you go to the coffee shop and they describe the way a flavor profile of coffee is. It's like, well, I just want darker light roast. I mean, I don't care if it's got chocolate and nuts and blueberries and whatever else going on. So it's kind of like that with EQ and sound guys. You know, you can interpret what you're hearing and say all this fancy language, but it's just as simple as a volume control for different frequencies. That's it. That's good stuff. And this next question I have for you is to maybe just to make sure that I'm not the only one that um, did this whenever I was first getting started. Like when you first got started with sound, did you have a tendency to want to boost everything with EQ? Oh, mainly the bass. Yeah, absolutely. Crank it. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing I do is put in a CD or a, an MP3 or whatever and, and crank the bass because you want to feel it bumping, you know, and, and that's, um, I, I first got started in sound by DJing. And if you looked at my EQ filters on those consoles, oh man, it was awful. It was atrocious. Um, the other thing people like to do is make a smiley face curve on their, um, graphic EQ because that's kind of the, the loudness curve that we like to hear for the human ear. And so a lot of people that are not super sophisticated with EQ, they'll go in and they just do that to everything. And it's a blanket statement. It's just like, oh, yeah, well, this sounded good over here. It's going to sound good everywhere else. And, and that's you're boosting highs and boosting lows because that's what your ear wants to hear. Uh, but it can really destroy the sound if you're not careful. And, and yeah, I made those mistakes for sure. Um, try not to do that anymore. But uh, sometimes you're tempted to. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Like, whenever you're first getting started, you just hear, listen for things like, what do I want more of? And that's probably just because our tendency as human nature is we always want more of everything. What do I want more of? So then you're focusing on boosting frequencies. But we, what we should really be focusing on is what do we need less of? Like, we should be focused on cutting frequencies. And why, why should that be our focus? Yeah, well, it's not nearly as fun, right? I mean, to be fair, um, we can hear the bad sounds and, and, and in the boosted adjustments, we can hear those a lot easier than when we're carving stuff away. It's like uh, getting rid of a bad habit. Everybody hates trying to change a bad habit, right? It's just too easy to turn it up the other direction. So, uh, but with EQ, yeah, it's super important to cut. Um, the reason for that is uh, a few different reasons. One is that uh, whenever you're boosting or cutting frequencies, you're affecting other frequencies on either side of that selection, right? So when you turn them up, you're turning up other frequencies with it. And same with turning them down. It's just when you turn them up, you start to impact the different distortion and the effect you have across those frequency bands. And when you boost it, that distortion becomes way more apparent than when you're cutting them. So that's why cutting them is so important. It reduces the amount uh, of that audible um, influence on the cut frequencies around it and the interaction of those. So that's a, that's a really helpful thing. Um, you know, the other thing that it does is that it helps clarify the sound when you cut. When you boost frequencies, you're actually injecting more sound that probably that may not really exist that well in the first place. Um, you know, like with bass, uh, when I would always crank that bass knob or, or the, the filter that would turn that up, it was probably because my sound system just couldn't produce those frequencies in the first place. 
And I wasn't doing any favors by boosting it. I was just making it tubby and muddy and, and that, you know, if I wasn't, didn't have a subwoofer, that woofer was just barely able to sustain any of those frequencies. So it really can cause that kind of distortion and muddiness in the mix if you're boosting too much. Yeah, no doubt. I always call the EQ golden rule is to cut before you boost. Always listen to the sound and be like, what can I get rid of to fix the problem? A good example of this is like whenever you're listening to a vocal and you're like, oh, it's just, it's not clear. I need more clarity. And you might want to go start boosting like in that one kilohertz to five kilohertz range to try to bring clarity to it. But what you really need to do is probably put a low cut filter on it or, or cut out in that two to 300 hertz range that's making it muddy and hard to distinguish what's going on. Which brings me to my next question. What is the most important EQ filter? Well, yeah, yeah, you hit on it right away. And and, uh, funny enough about boosting the bass, that's often the thing that needs to get cut. Even, believe it or not, on a bass guitar or a kick drum. Um, What? Yeah, right? (laughs) Impossible. Blasphemy. (laughs) Um, You're supposed to get all that bass, right? It's got to be thumping. Well, funny enough, all those low, low frequencies, anything below really, I mean, for most audio sources below about 60 to 80 hertz even, and on the bass guitar and the kick drum, even below 40 hertz um, can be cut out of the frequency spectrum uh, because... Uh, unless you have a really high-end sound system, your speakers are probably going to be inefficient at producing those frequencies accurately in the first place. So you're not really getting the benefit that you think you are by keeping those frequencies in the mix. And they also cause a lot of rumble and a lot of resonance with other things going on in the building. And this can become a complicated discussion if you want to analyze every part of it, but there's different things like HVAC duct work. There's different things that can create standing waves based on the dimension of your room and all these different things. Those low frequencies can really cause those acoustic problems to stand out that much more. So it's best just to cut them out if at all possible. So I always advise, especially with vocals, starting, you know, at at like 80 hertz and even a little bit higher cutting some of those out. But almost every instrument can benefit from uh, using a high pass filter or a low cut filter, depending on how you like to think about it. A high pass filter Uh, labeled HPF on a lot of consoles simply just allows high frequencies to pass through at a certain point and cuts the lows on the other side of that point. So if you set your high pass filter or low cut filter at 80 hertz, that means everything below 80 hertz is being dropped off and everything above it is allowed to pass through. So that's, that's one of the most important tools on your console. And it's, it's not even really called an EQ. It's, it's just a frequency filter is all it is. Yeah, and it's really surprising how big of a difference it makes in your mix. I remember when I discovered how important it was to use that on every instrument, get it dialed in right, because it really relieves stress on your subwoofers and your speakers and cleans up your sound. And you're just like, wow. Really, if you it comes down to it, like if all you had was gain and a low cut filter, you could create some pretty great sound with just those two things. Yeah. And I actually yeah. have a low cut filter cheat sheet. If you're, you know, if you're over there thinking, well, I want to do this, but I don't know where to set the low cut filter for each instrument. So I'll link to that in the show notes, and you can find it at collaborateworship.com. But the next question is, okay, so we got the low cut filter down, but what about the rest of the EQ spectrum? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of frequencies left. So what what do we do with those? Well, you need to start by looking at a chart and memorizing each individual frequency and know exactly what it does on every instrument. 
No, I'm, I'm, I'm just joking, obviously. <laughs> um, don't do that. Uh, it can be helpful to have those kinds of cheat sheets as a guide. And I think we've probably got some resources we can share in the show notes as well that uh, we've teamed up on. So um, definitely don't hesitate to, to take that kind of overview approach and look at those different frequencies. But honestly, think of it like the volume control approach. And there's actually some really simple tools that you can uh, use to find and adjust those frequencies in the mix without even knowing what they're supposed to be. Where do you start first? Well, you don't even have to know where to start um, with this one method. And, and so what we'll talk about is, is the, what I call the boost sweep cut method. There's a few different names for it. I think in one of our uh, recent chats, one of your listeners um chimed in and said this is a search and destroy method and i was like yeah that's that's for sure i love it um so yeah if you want to think of this as a search and destroy method go for it so basically what you do is you uh, this works really well um, on digital consoles and analog consoles as long as you have what's called a sweepable mid eq or a semi-parametric eq on the analog console and often that's the middle two knobs on that console. Some will have uh, two sets of those uh, for each frequency uh, set up there. But um, on a digital console, it's a parametric EQ. And basically what you do is you select the frequency and put it anywhere on the spectrum from you know 20 kilohertz down to 20 hertz and, and then boost that frequency by about, normally I, I pick about six decibels. I want to hear it. Uh, three decibels boost isn't probably dramatic enough. So I boost it up to six. Some people boost it to nine. I don't get that crazy with it. I can normally hear a six dB boost. So I boost it to six dB. I take the Q and I dial that in somewhere in the middle. I don't want a, a very broad Q. So the lower the Q number, the wider that filter is. So Q of one is like a really wide filter with this gradual kind of hilltop kind of curve. Um, what you want to do is select a filter probably around three or four or five, somewhere in that range. Um, make it fairly narrow. So you're looking at identifying a very particular frequency range. And then what you do once you have that, you'll see it on the digital console or you'll just select it on your analog console. And then you start sweeping the frequency knob all the way across that spectrum, back and forth. And you do it slow enough so that you can hear what sounds the worst. Like pick out the worst sound. A lot of times with a voice, it's that nasal sound or that kind of whistling sound. Um, sometimes you're looking to get rid of some rumble on a guitar or something and you're sweeping along trying to find the muddiest sound you can find in that frequency spectrum. As soon as you find it, you've identified that frequency just automatically. It's just there it is. It sounds, that's the worst sounding one, right? So then you cut it. So you take that down to start with minus three dB. Often these frequencies don't need a big cut. They just need enough to pull them out of that mix to stop interfering with everything. And if you have to bring it down to minus six dB, do that. If you go down much lower than three to six dB, you probably need to take that filter and narrow it a little bit so that you're not affecting so many frequencies on either side of that. Um, and, and if you've got a real problem frequency or a room tone problem, that can help by using a very narrow filter uh, to notch that out. But you can use that method on, I would say, two or three filters maybe for the most part, uh, and that'll start to clean up your sound immensely. But if you use a high-pass filter and cut all the lows out 
and then you use one filter where you search and destroy and get rid of that worst offending frequency, that'll take you 90% of the way to, to a pretty solid sound. Yeah, no doubt. And one thing that I find really helpful is, you know, I started off in the analog mixing space because I've been at this for a while and had to transition to digital. And I always struggled with going from, you know, the graphic EQ to the parametric EQ. And so what I found out, though, is after doing some research, is that a Q value of like around four is the same, similar to adjusting one of the knobs on a 31 band graphic EQ. So that's where I always like to start. or And I still do that, even though I've been in digital mixing for you know more than five years now, because that's just what my ear was used to working with a 31 band EQ. And so you kind of get the same result doing that. So if you came from analog, you're going to digital, you're still struggling. Hope that tip helps you out. Let's talk about vocal EQ. Like what's what's your kind of system for EQing a vocal for the first time? Yeah, the, f- the first thing is definitely um, cutting the lows. And that depends on whether I'm working with a male vocal or a female vocal. Um, and some consoles don't have the option to dial this in super well. Sometimes, especially analog consoles, it's a fixed filter. You either engage it or you don't, and there's no adjustment for it. Um, so, And a lot of those, the default is typically 80 hertz or maybe even 100 hertz um, and you don't get much range out of it other than that on a digital console most of the time you can sweep around in that low frequency range and i like to start somewhere between 80 hertz and 100 or 120 hertz for a male vocal um, it depends on the tone of their voice uh, but anything below 80 hertz is really not doing you any good unless you're dealing with an acapella group and you've got a really low bass and that is the only thing in the sound system. That's the only time you want to uh, leave the lows in there maybe. But other than that, yeah, you cut them all out. For uh, female vocals, it's good to play around with somewhere between 100 hertz and 150 hertz. So you take out more of those lows. And what that helps do is uh, a couple different things. It gets rid of the natural rumble that might be going on and the throat noise and stuff that you don't really need. And also for handheld mics, like if I'm holding the microphone, it takes out some of that handling noise uh, that, that can be transmitted, especially through some of the cheaper handheld mics that don't have good isolation. So it, it helps you in a lot of different ways. So you, you do that first, and then you use that boost, sweep, and cut method to take out the most offensive tones in that vocal range. And I struggled for years to get a good vocal sound and dial those in quickly. I was always fighting stuff. I was boosting highs to get more clarity. I was, I was even boosting lows to get more body. Um, there was a lot of different things I was doing. And what I realized is most of what I needed to do was get rid of the nasal tones or those shrill tones and get rid of the mud. And the rest of it just sort of naturally came together a little bit better. So that's the best way to do it. And really try to limit yourself to only a couple filters where you're really reducing a lot of problem uh, frequencies. That being said, you can boost a little bit, but you got to be like one or two spots. You might be able to do a small boost. And all you're doing with that is looking to bring out a little bit of brilliance or sparkle or just a little bit of help in certain frequency ranges. And you can play with that, but make sure your boosts are no more than probably three or four dB at a very targeted frequency. You should know why you're boosting something. Um, you know, Otherwise, just do cut only, and that'll get you most of the way there within two, a couple filters, really. 
Yeah, I've only really done one boost with vocals and I use it pretty often and I'll boost very slightly, like maybe three dB at the 12 kilohertz range somewhere in there. Yeah. And that's just to add like some air, some brilliance like to the vocal. I don't know. It just makes it kind of sparkle to me. Maybe something that not everybody would notice, but it's something that I enjoy. And another question for you, like, I, w- I wonder if this is just my ear or is this something that's similar with you is whenever I'm making those cuts in a vocal, I always find myself cutting between like five and 700 Hertz or somewhere in that range in a vocal. Like I just don't like it. And so I cut it, cut it out by about six negative six DB. Are you the same way? Do you find that area kind of offensive in a vocal? Yeah. Yeah. 600 Hertz just uh, kills me most of the time. Yeah. So 600 Hertz is almost gone immediately. 400 Hertz, actually, it depends on the room and the system, but 400 and 600 are always offensive frequencies. I I get really worried when I start cutting around 1000 and 2K um, in that range, because that's kind of the, the fundamental intelligibility range. That's where we get most of our articulation and and all of those consonants and the ability to really understand what's happening. And so when I start cutting anywhere between 900 and and 2.5K or something like that, that's telling me that I probably am chasing the wrong problem. Um, I might not be. Uh, Some sound systems just have problems with those frequencies in the room and whatever else, but... um, uh, you want to be careful about that middle range right there because you you can lose a lot of articulation if you're not careful. Yeah, no doubt. And I've I've also learned that like if you find yourself doing a bunch of EQ on like this certain vocal, that it could be like you could try a different mic and it might solve yes. a lot of your problems. And it's really interesting because most of the vocals at our church will use this Sennheiser mic. Uh, you know, that's around that $100 range. I don't know the exact model number. But then there's one vocal, and it happens to be my wife. She uses the the Shure SM58 because it sounds way better on her than the Sennheiser for whatever reason. I don't know. You just try it, and you find out these things. It's interesting. Yeah, and even even though a microphone might be listed, it, like even in the Shure series, the SM57 versus the SM58, they're essentially the same microphone with just a little bit of nuance in the construction. But it's uh, it can be remarkably different how that sounds. Or switching from a cardioid pattern to a super cardioid, um, the, the way the frequencies get picked up is remarkable, even in those cheaper microphones. I mean, you're talking about a Sennheiser probably 835 or something like that versus the SM58. They're practically the same. I mean, they sit on the same spot in the shelf. Um, they're $100 mic, and there's, there's really no major difference to them other than some of those tonal properties. And it can make a huge difference in your sound quality, surprisingly. All right, man. Last question. How do we eliminate feedback with EQ? <laughs> yeah, um, uh, interestingly enough, it's very similar to how we uh, fix EQ and make things sound better um, in instruments and vocals. Uh, the, the only difference is we're using a much narrower filter. So uh, what we like to do with uh, eliminating feedback is we use what's called a notch filter. And we take that cue to 10 or more, whatever your console goes to, try to create the, the narrowest notch filter you can. It's it's tough to do this on an analog console, uh, but um, you can, you can kind of trick around with it a little bit, fool around and, and get the um, the semi-parametric EQ to do a little bit of feedback control. But it's it's like taking a sledgehammer to instead of using a scalpel on it. So um, on, on your 
parametric EQ, select a Q uh, frequency and notch it to a Q of 10 or more, and then sweep across that range. And you'll need to have an ear for whether the feedback's just starting to kick off or whether it's actively going. You can turn, have a finger on the fader and turn up the sound until it's kind of going. And, and then you sweep across that spectrum. So you cut like 9 dB, 10 dB. You can do a dramatic cut with these feedback filters if it's narrow enough. And you sweep across until you find that ringing noise go down. The funny thing is that people will often cut feedback, they'll find the frequency pretty easy, and then they're tempted to turn the system up just a little bit more. And what happens is you'll find there's another free feedback frequency somewhere else. It might be lower or higher than the one you cut. It probably is a harmonic of the one you cut. So let's say you cut it at 100 hertz. Well, now you've got feedback at 50 hertz or 200 hertz, you know, either half or double of that root frequency. So you'll find that you may have to do two or three of these notch filters to take out uh, feedback in the room. And most of the time we try to do this with the master EQ. You don't do this on individual channels because most of your feedback is caused rarely by individual channels in and of themselves. It's often because of the way the speakers are, the acoustics or something like that. So we try to take out the fundamental feedback frequencies in the room first with the master EQ. And that's how we do it. Um, it's really that simple. There's not a whole lot of magic to it. This reminds me of uh, something that happened at our church a couple of weeks ago. We're having a feedback problem and we don't have that very often, but you do occasionally, even whenever you're an experienced mixer even in the same room. And uh, I wasn't running sound that day so that we were talking about it afterwards. They're like, it was, it was Beth's mic, my wife's mic. Cause she sings kind of quieter. So usually she's the, the offender of any type of feedback. Cause her mic is running the loudest, you know? And I don't know if it's, it's probably just, you know, over a decade of experience in this. I'm like, it wasn't her mic. It was the acoustic guitar. And they're like, how do you know that? And it's like, I honestly don't know. Like it's just some kind of intuition. And so I happened to look at it the next week during rehearsal. They're like, help us solve this problem. And they were over compressing the, the acoustic guitar and didn't realize it. So the acoustic guitar was being compressed like negative 24 dB was that threshold. Like it was just slamming it down. And so they kept turning up the acoustic guitar. I can't hear it. I can't hear it. So then every time the acoustic guitar would stop playing, it would just be an open mic inside of that guitar and it would cause feedback. But they attributed it to, you know, my wife's mic, because that's usually the offender. So it's interesting. Feedback can come from so many sources. Yeah, yeah, it can, especially if your church still is using stage monitors and things like that. That can be a big offender. Uh, piano mics are another one. If you've got the acoustic piano and you've got a lot of other instruments or live reinforcement around it, that the lid on the piano acts like the, the top of the acoustic guitar. It just is a resonator and it picks up everything and just kind of kicks it off. So it can be tricky to get a handle on that. Um, you know, you can, you can stop feedback with EQ. Uh, but the best way to stop it is better mic placement or better microphones or um, or, yeah, turning off that that brick wall compressor. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And back to that notch filter thing, I was just thinking with most digital mixers these days, you can turn on the RTA or real time analyzer. And so whenever you turn it up to hear that feedback frequency, you can look at that and see exactly where it is and you don't have to even go searching. Yeah, no, that's true. You know exactly right. And and again, you'll probably see it pop up in different modes or, or harmonics of, of that main frequency. So if you look at that peak frequency and it's at, you know, 400 hertz or whatever it is, look at 200, look at 800, 
see where those doubles and halves are and and you probably that's a room problem that's that's not always the microphone or the source issue so it's just how those frequencies bounce around in there so yeah it's it's worth paying attention to that kind of stuff for sure well, if you enjoyed our talk today on EQ, uh, you'd be happy to know that we actually, James and I created a course together called the EQ Crash Course, where we teach you this stuff and we have plenty of visual and audio examples throughout the course. There's more than 700 people already in the course. and We'd love to have you too. So if you want to enroll in that course, you can just visit collaborateworship.com slash EQ. Well, James, man, this has been so good. Thanks for being with us today. What's the best way for people to stay in touch with you? Yeah, come on over to uh, greatchurchsound.com. Um, I put out a regular newsletter if you want to sign up for that. Um, you can check out the book and all that other stuff. Um, and you can also find me on Facebook at Great Church Sound or the Facebook group uh, Great Church Sound Techs. So um, yeah, come on and connect with me there. I keep toying around whether I should get on Instagram and all this other stuff. I just don't take that many pictures, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Facebook's a good place to, to meet up with me. I've got a lot of blog posts that I share and, and different things like that. So come on over and say hi. Awesome. Yeah, don't miss this opportunity to connect with James Wasson. You need to follow this guy and engage with what he has going on and definitely pick up his book, Great Shirt Sound. You'll find it on Amazon and we'll link to all of this in the show notes. And as always, thanks for being with us. We need your help to get this podcast out to everybody who needs it. So please leave us a rating and a review on whatever platform you are using. And don't forget to subscribe so we can let you know when the next episode comes out. So go implement what you learned in this podcast and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.